The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You probably figured out by now I am not Bill McCutcheon. You are correct with your assessment. Um, uh, my name is Tim Pitzer, pastor of student ministries here, and Bill is uh, away with family. He's actually at Parents Weekend with uh, his youngest son, Matthew, at Queen's University. So uh, we're thankful that he got some time away, and I'm uh, honored to be here to bring you God's Word this morning. If you're just joining us uh, on this Sunday, welcome. Again, we're excited you're here. I want to catch you up to speed. We're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been uh, studying it for a couple weeks now, and so we are in a section on the Beatitudes, which is where we are in Matthew 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there, Matthew Chapter 5, uh, also it'll be on the screen behind me. I'm going to be uh, really focusing in on, on verse 5, but for context, we'll read uh, the 12 verses around it. This is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Jesus said, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray and ask God's blessing in the reading of his word. God, we thank you now for your word. We pray in the few minutes that we have that uh, that this voice your word, the word of God, would, would stand apart from all the other voices that we encountered this week. Uh, either the voices of, of our culture, of even our own heads that want to feed us lies. God, we know that one word is true, is trustworthy, and it is the one that you gave it to us, your word. And so we thank you for it. We pray now uh, that it, maybe even in new ways that the gospel would come in and that we would open our hearts to it and that we would allow uh, you to come in and, and minister to our hearts, to show us the places that are not of you. And God, that you would remind us what it means to be meek. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, if you're just joining us uh, in this sermon series that we began, and uh, last week we preached, Bill preached on verses 3 through 4, uh, on blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who mourn. And so, kind of for context, uh, I want to let you know that a lot of times during the sermon, I'm going to say verses 3 through 4, and I won't always uh, say what was in those, but it's important to remember where we just came from. So, verses 3 through 4, poor in spirit, the idea that uh, there's nothing in us that can please God, and then those who mourn, the idea that we are sinful and we should mourn over our sin. And something Bill introduced this sermon series saying is that Uh, this model that we're supposed to have is not to look at these beatitudes and to say, I need to be more like that. I need to try to be more meek. I need to try to be more poor in spirit. But this is actually a better way of explaining it is that this is describing a Christian. 
You see, something that Jesus was constantly answering and having uh, wanted to communicate is what was the kingdom of God and who was it for? And Matthew, through Jesus, Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is. This is what a Christian is described as. This past Wednesday, uh, towards the end of work, I had like a parenting first for me. I got a call right as I was finishing up work from Steph, and it was uh, Ruthie, our three-and-a-half-year-old, it was, Ruthie is in her room until her dad gets home and you go talk to her. This was, a, it's a parenting first. This is not a new situation for me. This is just the first time I've been on this end of it um, as a parent. So sure enough, I got in my car and, you know, I'm having all these flashbacks. To, Man, this is what my dad felt like. Like, what are you going to say? What's going to happen? What did she really do? You know, all these thoughts going through my head. I get home. Um, and I was listening for it, and sure enough, when I opened the door, I just hear, like, bawling from her room, you know, Ruthie crying. And, uh, and Steph said, I, I want to talk to her just for a minute before you go in, and she went up and talked to her, and uh, Steph left, and she walks down the stairs, and it's silent. Like, I don't hear anything from Ruthie's room. So I walk up the stairs, and I, I'm walking down the hallway. I'm really having flat. even now I'm having flashbacks to, like, hearing the creaks from my dad when he would walk. Um, you know, I recognized every, I knew exactly where he was, depending on what step uh, sound. And so I opened the door, and Ruthie's sitting on the edge of her bed, just blankly staring at the, the door, hands on her knees, just not doing anything. And she looks at me, and she keeps it together for like a second, and then just loses it. I mean, just like gut-wrenching, wailing. Like, I have never seen my child have this kind of tears. Like, just... So, so bad. Steph said, I think, later on, she thought that I just, like, went right and spanked her right away because it was just this gut-wrenching wailing. And so I I went over, and I picked her up, and I I sat down with her. We have a rocking chair in her room, and uh, finally, when she could, you know, in between the, (laughs) in between those, um, I said, Ruthie, why, why are you crying? What's wrong? And she said, I was mean to Clara, and then just started wailing all over again, as soon as she said that. And as hard as it was for me to see my daughter so upset, I honestly thought of our sermon series. And I thought, I wonder if this is where people felt like we left them last week. Because we said so much about, this is what it means to be poor in spirit. There's nothing in you that that can uh, prove yourself to God, that can measure up. And then we talked about mourning over your sin and brokenness. And it was hard to hear. And now... In comes this one, verse 5. This is a shift within the Beatitudes. You see, the first two talked about negative, talked about things that you, you can't possess. And this is the first one that we encounter that actually says a positive one, that says this is how, this is a descriptive of someone, not just something that you're lacking. And so it's a huge, huge shift within what Jesus was teaching. And it's important for us To cover because there's a huge question after last week that we have to look at, right? It's now what? Okay, thanks, Bill. I'm poor in spirit. I'm mourning over my sin. You got me. Now what? Just like with Ruthie, after she she kind of said, you know, I was mean to Clara. There's inevitable question of now what? I've broken one of my my parents' rules that we're not supposed to be mean to our family members and unkind. Now what? And so that's what we're going to look at throughout the course of this. Now, what I'm going to do this in three points. I'm thrown off because uh, this is the shortest verse I've ever preached on. 
So it's 10 words. Um, So my points are, the first is what is meekness? We're just going to simply look at the definition of meekness. Second point is what is the motivation for meekness? And then thirdly, why does it matter? So if you're a a note taker, those are our three points. What is meekness? What's the motivation for meekness? And why does it matter? So first, what is meekness? This beatitude actually is Jesus quoting uh, verses 3 and 4 aren't, but verse 5, this beatitude is Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. Quotes from Psalm 37, verse 11, David wrote, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I'm going to make an assumption for kind of all of us uh, this morning. Sorry if it's not true, but I think a lot of us aren't really sure what meekness means. Uh, we maybe have a, a little bit of a guess at, at best, but uh, maybe even a, a big mis- misunderstanding of what this one means. I'm going to confess, I went to seminary for three years, studied the Bible, and I was not prepared for what meekness meant. It was kind of the one I thought, oh yeah, I really should kind of figure out what that means. And so I went into this really honestly not having, I, I felt like a good understanding of what the word meek means, because we don't use this in our normal everyday vocabulary. But... I think a lot of us have a misunderstanding of what it is. And so there's a few misunderstandings we have to kind of get out of the way. Here's what meekness does not mean. It does not mean having a low self-esteem. It does not mean kind of being insecure. I think that's what some of us think when we hear the word meekness, is that someone that doesn't really want to be out front through their insecurities. They just kind of would rather push away from that. And the reason why it can't mean this is because Jesus was actually referred to as meek, in scripture, and we're pretty sure that, we're very sure he did not have a low self-esteem problem. So there's no way this word can really mean that. The second thing that we're tempted to think it means, I think, is that it's just like an overly intense way to describe a nice person. Or maybe someone that is just like so kind, so sweet, uh, that they're really worthy of the word meek. And the reason why that can't really be it is that that actually describes most dogs. (laughs) And we wouldn't say that dogs are meek. I love dogs. Definitely cats have nowhere near way of being meek, but dogs still don't have a way of being meek. This is actually, uh, the word meek has a close assimilation with gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And so it's got to mean so much more than, than maybe what we've thought it means. So here's what it means for us. And I've got a definition. You've heard it before. Um, uh, Bill has quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones on this series. He is a great uh, author to pick up. His uh, whole series on the Sermon on the Mount, a great book that's very readable. So I encourage you, if you want to study more about this, pick this up. But he's got a definition for meekness that I think is great. Here it is. It says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It is my attitude towards myself, and it is an expression of that in my relationship to others. I'm going to read that one more time. It says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It's my attitude towards myself, and it is an expression of that in my relationship to others. <clears throat> I love this definition, because here's why. You have to have ownership of verses 3 through 4 before you can go on to verse 5. You have to understand what it means inside to have an ownership of meekness, of being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin before you can go to verse 5. Here's the hard part about meekness. A lot of times if we're trying to 
kind of live out a certain word. We think about what that word looks like, and then we do the corresponding behavior, right? So if I want to be nice, then I have a picture in my mind of what someone would do nice things, and I try to do those. And okay, I've, done, I've been nice. Or if I want to be happy, here's a way to be happy, and I do those things, and in my mind, I've kind of checked it off the list. But here's the hard part about meekness. Meekness actually demands that what's going on on the inside matches the expression that is going on on the outside. That what actually is going on in the inside of your heart looks exactly like what is being expressed. This goes so much farther beyond. You've kind of all been there, I'm sure, with you know, either your kids or any, if you spend many time around kids in general, like a four-year-old who does something wrong, and then you say, inevitably, what, you know, say you're sorry. That's usually the, sorry. I don't know, maybe they don't have that level of sarcasm by four, but they learn it soon. So you're sorry. And then what, what happens next? You always say, like you mean it, say you're sorry. And so then, even if they figure out some way to have a heartfelt apology, here's the problem. Meekness actually means that you have to look at what's going on the inside and say, does that match? Does what's going on in your heart match what you just said? That's the hard part about meekness. When we think about meekness, I want you to think about this. Meekness means there is one massive reality that is so amazing that it changes how you respond in every situation. When I was about 9 or 10 years old, um, I had a strict bedtime. Um, Partly because of what I said in the beginning, you're a dad and you have to come home and punish your kid every day. You want to send them to bed early. Um, so I had a strict bedtime. I had a younger sister who was like eight years younger and an older sister four years older. So I was pretty much the only one that really like had to pay attention to bedtime. My parents would send me to bed and it was like 8.30. I don't know if that's normal for a nine-year-old, but uh, that's when I went to bed. And I'll never forget that the show America's Funniest Home, I saw the parents looking at their kids. See, he did it too. He's a pastor. So sorry, kids. Um, but I never forget the show, America's Funniest Home Videos, fell within my allotted time to be awake. And so we loved watching this show together. And towards the end of it, I always kind of started getting like anxiety when the closing theme music came on, because that meant it's bedtime coming up. And there was the rare occasions where either because they just forgot or they were choosing to be merciful to me that I got to stay up past those credits. And I'll never forget the feeling when I got to still be awake for the opening theme song of Home Improvement. (laughs) Like, that was a good night. And what this looked like is, I remember it would start, and if I somehow, by the grace of God, made it to the end without my parents saying, okay, bedtime, uh, I I would just sit there like like someone that's fearing they're going to get caught if they're seen. And my parents knew that I was still awake. You know, they didn't forget. So I'd sit there. And something I never did was I never in those moments asked for a snack or asked for food or said, hey, can I get that seat on the couch? Can I get that blanket that you guys have? No, there was a complete contentment of I cannot believe that I'm being allowed to do what's being done right now. Now, that's a kid version of what actually meekness looks like. There's one massive reality, massive truth, massive thing that is so incredible that it means there's this underlying level of complete contentment within us. That's meekness. It's 
so much more so than just being able to stay awake past bedtime. It's actually what we encounter when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means. Here's the hard part about meekness as well. This isn't a popular word within our culture, right? The world doesn't look at meekness and say, that's what we want in our next CEO, right? Because it is not a popular perspective to have owned verses three through four. You could kind of almost feel the tension in the room last week when we were talking about, hey, you're poor in spirit. You feel like we were accusing you a lot? Hey, you're sinful. You need to mourn over your sin, And we talked a lot about how you have to be brought low in order to be built up. So the hard part with this is that within meekness, your heart has to match the outward behavior, what's being expressed. One of the favorite verses we have as a staff that Bill constantly brings up with us is Proverbs 4.23. It says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow springs of life. This means that the actions you make The things people see, the springs of life, have to match, have to be a representative of your heart. So what do we do with this? If we're there, you might say, okay, what if if I see that they don't match, what's my next move? And the answer is, you have to have a new heart. Not Not an easy answer, but it's the answer. You have to go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, which is what's described what happens when we encounter the gospel. Here's the thing with Ruthie. I feel I had this kind of epiphany during first service. I really hope my kids don't listen to my sermons like in 10 years because they realize like they're all about them um, and embarrassing. But with Ruthie, in that moment when she was crying, she was looking at me. And as soon as she kind of confessed, like she was looking for a response. You see, because simply coming and, and mourning over your sin saying you did something wrong, she even knew we're not done here. Like, can you imagine if after that happened, I said, okay, well, have a nice day, Ruthie, and then I walked out of the door. Imagine if you're sharing the gospel with someone for the first time with a non-Christian, and you get them to see that they're poor in spirit, that nothing they can do uh, can earn their way to God, and you get them to see that they're sinful, that they should mourn over their sin, and then you say, well, that's Christianity, then you walk away. There's a step in between verses 3, 4, and verse 5, and it's reconciliation. It's the question that we have to ask of, well, now what? Now that I've seen how sinful I am and that I'm poor in spirit, where do I go from here? And it's we have to be reconciled. And this is where meekness follows. Meekness is allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to have such an impact in your life, it has transformed you so much that it changes your response in every area, and it can only come after the gospel comes in and produces this change. That's one of the reasons why uh, you've probably seen it everywhere, kind of in our branding, the vision of our church, that we want to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. We want to see a genuine transformation first inside of our hearts, because then that produces the true expression of what is going on on the inside. I spoke with someone about meekness this week, and I said, what is meekness, like, what's your definition of meekness? Someone that I I trusted, she's been in the church a long time, she said that her mom always reminded her and told her that meekness means power under control. I thought that was really brilliant. Just three words, but it means power under control, and she said that, uh, always brought up this illustration of, you think about a horse, this massive, powerful animal, and what it's controlled by. 
controlled by a small bridle. And that controls the entire horse. It almost doesn't make sense that this massive animal is controlled by this. Or another way, uh, you think about an elephant. You guys have probably heard this before. An circus elephant, when they're uh, younger, they have a rope tied around their neck that's tied to a stake stuck in the ground. And when they're younger, they do not have the ability to, to pull the stake out. They constantly try and try. And so they grow up learning that when the rope is around their neck, there's no use that they can't actually uh, pull away from it. You want to talk about power under control. That's why uh, I don't think they use elephants in the circus anymore, but uh, if you'd seen them, they actually would just have ropes around their necks and they wouldn't even be tied to anything. That rope enough was enough, uh, the rope alone was enough to control this massive, powerful animal. And that's what we're talking about with meekness it's power under control. And it's such a power that's under control that it actually doesn't make sense to a watching world. Meekness has within it that we are almost willing to overlook injustice done to us because there is one massive reality that is true. And that's what has to be the motivation. So now point two, the motivation. What's the motivation for meekness? For this one, I actually want to turn to another passage Luke 15, you've uh, all, I'm sure, seen it and read it before. It's the passage about the prodigal son. I'm not going to read the whole passage, just uh, a few verses here for us. It says, And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We've heard this before. Here's what's going on. You have a son that wants his inheritance early. That was as good as basically looking at the father in the face and saying, I wish you were dead. Because he's saying, it would be better for my life for us to, for me to have the circumstances that would happen once you're dead than for me to wait. So he asks for inheritance early, and the father gives it to him. And the son takes all the money, and he goes off, and uh, that word squandered, that's not just like he made a, a bad business transaction. That's like he, he wasted money in the most epic way possible, in a very immature way. And he goes broke. And he's hungry and is in complete need. 
And so he realizes, this is ridiculous. Like, there are people, a part of my father's kingdom, my father's uh, uh, family, that, that have a better seat, that have a better circumstances than I have right now. Even his servants have the ability to eat food. So he says, I'm going to go back home, and I'm just going to ask for, like, the low-level entry into my father's land. He basically says, I'm not going to ask to be my father's son. I'm just going to ask to be a servant. And so he comes back, and you know what happens. When he was still a long way off, his father runs towards him. And the son confesses and says, I have wasted your money. I'm not deserving to be your son. And the father opens his arms and embraces him and says, you are lost, and now you're found. Here's the thing with meekness. If you are not seeing this word played out in your life, your next move is not to try to become more meek. Your next move is to look at the posture that your heavenly father had when you came to him with verses three through four. When you came to him poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, to see that your father had his arms open wide when you were still a long way off, when you were still just learning what it means to repent, learning what it means about sin, ran to you and says, you are my son, you are my daughter. You see, I've heard someone say before that they're going to get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. That is so unbelievably inaccurate. No one ever looks at their child, and if someone were to say, hey, are those your three girls? I wouldn't say, ah, kind of. No, like regardless of what they do, I'd say, mine, my kids, my daughters, and they can never lose that status. And I think we need a shift of understanding the posture that God constantly has when we come back to him and say, God, I sinned once again. You see, if if I am a, a sinful, broken father who feels like, who has that unconditional love for my kids, why is it that we don't think God can have that love for us? Why is it we think God actually isn't capable of that kind of love? We would never admit that out loud, but the way that we approach him again in our guilt and our shame when we finish that confession and we're waiting for the now what? What's God going to do? Really? Is there not enough blood spilled on the cross for that sin? God with his embrace, that's why I love this story, is saying, you are my child. When are you going to get that you can never have that status removed? You can never leave that. And so in between verses 3, 4, and now 5, is a declaration of who you are, that you are a child of the king, that you have been forgiven completely, that that's what the gospel means, and it comes in. The truth of the gospel is so life-changing that a meek person throws down their delusions of self-advancement and self-preservation and just simply says, God, I have been so changed by this reality that I am yours that whatever you have me go through, whatever circumstances, whatever life brings my way with me, with my family, I am yours. And that is such an amazing reality that it changes how I respond to everything. It changes how I respond when injustice is brought my way. It changes how I respond when someone says something, when people utter all kinds of revile things against me because I keep going back to the gospel. I keep going back to what you did when I approached your throne for the first time and said, I have wasted everything. I am a sinner. And your arms were open wide. So the way to become more meek, 
I know this is weird because I'm preaching a sermon on meekness and I'm saying don't even try to be meek. That doesn't make sense because the way to be meek is to go to see the arms of a Savior open wide for you. He has an example for us. One of the words that's affiliated with meekness I almost didn't want to talk about because it has this this stereotype, it has uh, a lot of misunderstandings of what it means, and it's the word submission, right? Even within our Christian circles, uh, definitely outside, we don't like that word submit, right? Because by definition, it means it's kind of basically surrendering your power for someone. So this word submit, but because Philippians 2 was written, we actually have to talk about it. I'm going to read Philippians 2 just a few verses. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Listen to this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. How much? By being obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, by submitting to this idea, by not always acting on the justice that you feel like you deserve, by by embodying a beatitude that doesn't make sense to a watching world, you get to show the world what the gospel looks like. You get to show the world what it looks like for a a king to leave his throne. This language is incredible. I mean, here's what this is saying, that he left his throne. He didn't consider equality to be God, a thing to be grasped, came down and sacrificed his life. There's no better example of meekness than that, and that's what we get to communicate to the watching world for the motivation for meekness. Before moving on to our last point, point three, I want to say something about meekness, kind of a confession. I was literally studying this on, I think, Tuesday, and I got up and I went to go get coffee in our our staff kitchen, and I went to pull a mug from the cabinet, and they were all gone. I look in the sink, and all the mugs are dirty in the sink. And I actually, you guys probably know what's coming, I actually said, I got to be the one to clean these mugs? I'm literally studying a sermon on meekness and humility, and those words actually made it out of my mouth. And I started thinking, why? Like, I literally, 30 seconds ago, was studying this and motivated by it, was being changed by it. Because here's the thing, guys, this is so not natural. This is so not our normal default to be meek, and it's certainly not the default of our world. If you're wanting to hire a CEO Uh, the board is not going to put on one of our top qualities is that he's meek because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense why someone wouldn't capitalize on everything they possibly have to preserve and to push their wills forward. It's a concept that can only come when you encounter the gospel. One of the greatest injustices, by the way, that we can see that a perfect man, a perfect God died on our behalf. And so why does it matter? It's our last point. Why does it matter? Within the context of Matthew, who he was writing to was the Jews. And so this, this language of you shall inherit the earth, the land, this would kind of, it's kind of a, a, a tip of the hat sort of to Israel when they were fleeing from Egypt. 
and being shown, being promised the promised land. So inheriting the earth was, that would have been familiar language. But for the readers at this time, they're, they're thinking and they're, they're looking forward, they're waiting for what does this mean that there's a promised Messiah coming? And for them, it was military, it was political. It was finally someone's going to come and, and, and bring up our interests. They're going to come and, and defeat the Roman Empire. They're going to come and advance our wills. And in comes this Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that one wouldn't have gone over well to a Pharisee who believes that he has the ability to please God and blessed who mourn. But then there's blessed are the meek. That one would have just ultimately been the, the defeating blow of the meek. The meek will inherit the land? That doesn't make sense. Everything that we thought of, of the kingdom of God, we thought that it was going to, we had these, this own idea of what the kingdom of God looks like and what it's going to look like for us when it comes. And in enters the gospel, in enters Jesus, and starts saying these things like, yeah, it means completely different than what he actually thought it was going to mean. Here's the thing. In the Christian life, I think there are two sort of elephants in the room that are kind of crazy to me that we don't talk about a lot. And I'm guilty of this too. This isn't just indictment on you. The first one is that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. You guys thought about that before? You literally have God inside of you. That's just weird that we don't talk about uh, as much as we should, uh, myself included. But the second one is that we have this inheritance waiting for us. Here's what this would look like. This is how silly this is. Imagine that you're uh, your parents are billionaires. So I, at the time, I had Bill Gates as an example, and I actually looked it up this morning. He has three kids. So imagine you're the, the three kids. I don't know if they're uh, sons or daughters, but you're the three kids of Bill Gates. You obviously have billions to your name, and imagine no one ever talks about it. Imagine you're, you're three siblings. You never reference it. Uh, you, you don't really bring it up. Your parents never talk about it. There's just this massive elephant in the room of your family's worth billions and it's never referenced. That would just be weird, right? How much worse is it of what we do? We have this inheritance. That, like this inheritance that is described as beyond anything that you can ever dream or imagine in this life that Christ has purchased for us and we don't talk about it. We don't get excited about it. I think sometimes we, we think about what it means to be on this earth, and it's a struggle. Uh, it's not easy to, to be a Christian. And so we think that that's kind of all there is. We forget that, yes, the cross of Christ motivates us when we look back, and what we have to look forward to is an eternal inheritance. Listen to what is described. Uh, this is what we have, ready? It's from 1 Peter It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, here's your inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power is being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, this inheritance is going to be revealed. It's not hypothetical. It's not just some kind of fairy tale that Christians tell themselves to try to get through this hard life. This is actually something coming that we have to look forward to, and this is the kingdom of God. And so my kind of closing challenge question for all of us is what were you thinking the kingdom of God looks like? 
The Pharisees and the Jews in the Old Testament thought uh, the kingdom of God is going to look uh, political. It's going to look military. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look like Christ is going to come in and, and it's going to defeat all of our enemies physically. And I think if we're honest, the dreams, the things that we had that we thought the kingdom of God looks like actually looked kind of similar. We want to say, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so hold up what you're what you are thinking your inheritance looks like. Hold up alongside. See, a lot of us, when we think about what the kingdom of God is, what it actually does for us, we think of one way, but then the Bible says, here's what your inheritance actually looks like, and compare the two. Because this one says that it's undefiled, it's imperishable, it will never, ever end, and it's secure. And I promise if you really take time to be honest about what you were thinking the kingdom of God looks like to you, it's not going to measure up. They can't be compared. In conclusion, I want to say this about Matthew 5. I I can't help but wonder this idea of of being low, of verses 3 through 4. Two years ago when we had Hurricane Matthew uh, happen, um, a a lot of you helped us with our house. We had like 10, 12 inches. A lot of people had flooding with water. This was like the lowest time for, for my family and I. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I went back early. I wasn't with Steph. Found our house. About a week later, Steph's brother got diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. A month later, we had Clara while we were still evacuated from our house. I mean, it was the lowest time we had ever experienced. And God did something for me and my family in the midst of that. I was reminded of it because the song that we sang during the offertory, As For Me... I have made God my refuge. He reminded me what that refuge is. And so here's what it looks like. You see, when Christ was talking, when Jesus was talking, verses 3 and 4, I can't help but wonder if as he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, take a second to think about what that would have been like for him. Literally, the reason he's about to have to go to a cross is because there are people who are poor in spirit and mourning over their sin. We all need that. And so he's, I can't help but wonder if he's thinking about the cross and thinking about this is the reason why I have to go. And then in between verses 3 and 4 and 5, in comes the cross. And do you know what held him there? Our sin put him there, but what held him there was his meekness. Power. We want to talk about power under control. So often, I know that we've thought this, like, why didn't a league of a thousand angels come? And why didn't he just, like, clear the air right there? Just totally say, I'm God. You all got it wrong. You're dead. You're dead. I'm getting myself down from the cross. He stayed there. That's one of the greatest examples of injustice, of power under control that we can think of. And this truth, this reality, that what he did has given us an eternal inheritance, imperishable, unfading, has to change and inform the way that we handle every single thing that we encounter in this life. May this be so life-changing that people will look at how we respond and say, that person seems like they're meek because of the gospel. Let's pray. God, this is not easy. We, we feel this. We get excited about the gospel. We remember that your arms are open wide to us, even in the midst of our shame and our guilt. God, and then we turn around and we forget. We forget what you've called us to. We forget about the gospel. 
God. And it's in those times of despair, it's in those times that we are so thankful of what it actually means to be saved, that it is not our grip holding on to you, but it is your grip that will never let us go. God, my prayer for everyone in this room is that we would see the posture that you had when we came back to you from our sin and rebellion. You ran to us. Like a child that that lost his son or daughter and now is finding them, you ran to us and you said, you are mine. God, in this power, would we embody meekness, power under control. In Christ's name, amen.